He is likely best known for collaborating with composer Stephen Sondheim as the book writer for Pacific Overtures, Assassins, and Roadshow. But he also conceived the dance musical Contact with Susan Stroman and has done notable book revisions on such musicals as Fiorello and Tenderloin, both originally written by his father, and Anything Goes, which is currently in production at the Roundabout Theatre Company's Stephen Sondheim Theatre. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I always enjoy a chance to talk with John Weidman. It's a pleasure to be here, Howard. Hey, John. Um, Let's talk about Anything Goes, because this is a revival of a revisal that in roughly 87, 88, you did this new version of Anything Goes. Now we're seeing that revived. I read... You weren't planning to do much, only little nips and tucks. Was there much nipping and tucking for this well, the, version? Well, the goal in, in uh, 25 years ago was to create a new book for the show, which would feel like it had been written in 1934, but which would be paced in a way which would make it acceptable to audiences today. And we feel that we accomplished that. And the impulse behind it was uh, um, um, Anna Krauss, who lamented the fact that there had never been a first-class revival of the show since 1934. And the one at Lincoln Center was the first. Greg Mosher was also uh, really uh, determined to take Cole Porter, who had been a theater artist, but whose work had sort of drifted off into nightclubs. and well, drifted off, it was, but was now mostly being heard in nightclubs and cabarets and put him back on stage. We were quite satisfied with the finished product at Lincoln Center, and it became Anything Goes. Um, uh, in the sense of the standard yes. version that's now licensed, it's, it, Precisely. Just, uh, Fiddler on the Roof is Fiddler on the Roof. Sweet Charity is Sweet Charity. And this is Anything Goes. Uh, there's a version that was done off-Broadway in 62, which is extremely different. Songs from other shows, uh, other Porter shows, and that's available for licensing. But this is... Anything goes, and this is what professional companies always do. When we looked at it this time, you know, whenever you get a major production of a of a of a major show, the impulse to go back and tweak is is irresistible and should not be resisted. I mean, the, as I said, somebody the other day, the sound of a of a joke of a line that asks for a laugh and hasn't gotten one for twenty five years is deafening. So uh, essentially, what we did um, this time around was uh, Tim Krause eyes to go in and. T- tweak the lines that seemed to be asking for laughs and weren't getting them. And we really excised just about everything that, that I would describe in that way. There weren't a lot of them, but there were enough of them. But do you think they weren't getting them because in some way humor had changed, audiences changed, or the performers at the time made them work in a way that for whatever reason performers now w- couldn't make them work? I think that um, uh, they were not well-written. I think it, I think that there are certain performers like uh, John McMartin in this particular production who can you know really make magic out of just about anything I would that, agree with you. that has got a laugh even buried in it someplace. But no, the stuff that we took out was stuff that didn't work and it wasn't because we didn't have the right people saying it. It was because the material just wasn't up to the level of the other stuff. And as I say, it was in total it was probably a half page of of material. We at the same time we did go in and do some rearranging and fix certain lines other than simply cutting them. But it was it was the the work was really was minor. My guess is that people who saw the show twenty five years ago and are seeing this production would have trouble seeing any difference in the 
the, between the text of the, of the show at Lincoln Center and the text of the show at the Roundabout. I saw an interesting quote from you describing the work that you and Timothy Krause did 25 years ago as taking a pre-Rodgers and Hammerstein musical and revising it for a post-Rodgers and Hammerstein world. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think that's accurate. It doesn't mean that we took Anything Goes and turned it into a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. What it does mean is that we took a show, a musical, which had been written for an audience which had certain expectations of what a musical was going to deliver when they went to the theater, and we tried to reshape it so that it would satisfy the expectations of an audience that was coming in to see a musical after the Rodgers and Hammerstein era, which is to say, despite the the fundamental sort of silliness of the show, at its heart, it has a group of characters who are driven by urgent desires, desperate desires to get something they want, particularly Billy Crocker, who's fallen in love with Hope Harcourt, the debutante, and is determined to win her hand before the show is over. So that one of the things that we tried to do was, without sacrificing any of the comedy, but, uh, you know, um, uh, by rewriting it and reshaping the story and rearranging songs and using them in different ways. We tried to raise the stakes so that a company of good actors could play their intentions for real, as I say, without sacrificing any of the sort of goofiness which is inherent in the in the show itself. And I think we succeeded, and I, I think the degree to which we succeeded is obviously augmented when you get an actor like Colin Donnell, who's playing Billy Crocker, and Laura Osnes, who's playing you know, his love interest, both of whom have clearly raised the stakes in these parts. Laura Osnes playing Hope Harcourt is a hard part to play well, because there's not a lot there. She's reactive. She only has one song of her own in the second act. But she has done an exquisite job of making the tension between what her mother expects of her and what Billy wants from her seem like a real human being's dilemma as mm -hmm. opposed to just a device to make silly comedy work. When musicals from the 30s or even going back to the 20s are revived, if they're not redone, we learn that they aren't what we believed them to be. There usually were a few good songs, which became the hits, yeah. and there was a lot of filler. So when you looked at Anything Goes, how much did you have to supplement it, and how much of it was rearranging to well, serve the plot? The answer to that is got a, several parts to it. One of the things that, uh, as, as I said earlier, had happened to the show of the course of the years, and it's it's particularly evident in the in this 1962 Off Broadway revival, which was successful. Songs from other Porter shows had had migrated into the piece, so the integrity of the show had kind of disappeared, and the integrity of the score had kind of disappeared. One of the things that we did was to restore a great deal of the music which had been cut for one reason or another. And some of it is sort of transitional and charm music like Lady Fair and the, the Sailor's Shanty. Uh, but it also included the song Easy to Love, which had been in the show when it was out of town and had been cut because William, I think, I think it was William Gaxton, uh, couldn't sing it. Hmm. We also uh, took a song like Gypsy and Me, which had been in the original score and been cut and restored it 
uh, but used it in an entirely different way. Was it originally for Lord Evelyn? No. The 1934 script does not end on on board ship. The last scene takes place in an English country manner where the where the plot sorts itself out in some way, which I can't even quite remember. Um, but uh, A Gypsy in Me was a song which was a sort of a, a kind of a throwaway song, last song in the show for Hope, which was just sort of meant to express that there was, she had a, there was a kind of a wilder side to her than anybody had seen before, but it served no storytelling purpose. It was not what we would call a book song hmm. in any way. When Tim and I looked at the core story that we wanted to preserve and looked at Evelyn's character and the way in which we wanted to reshape it, we saw this song as an opportunity to become the, the pivotal point in the Evelyn Oakley story over the course of the evening. And in a way, it, it's a pivotal point for Reno Sweeney as well. And as I said, it was a song which had been exiled from the show. It's now back in the show. Hmm. The score is much closer to what the 34 score was uh, than it has so ever been before. It wasn't so much about interpolating. It was about restoring. It was about restoring. And um, uh, we removed a couple of songs which had been uh, added to the show, like Take Me Back to Manhattan over the course of the years. Um, I, I, I should say, uh, in, in all honesty, um, although our intentions were pure, we weren't stupid. Uh, there were songs like The Lovely and Friendship, specifically The Lovely and Friendship, which had been added to the score over the course of the years, even though once from DuBarry was a lady, and obviously still whenever, if anybody ever stages well, DuBarry whenever, was a lady. It's, it's, you yeah, don't see it that often. You don't see it that often. So that we hung on to those, and obviously we hung on to, hung on to them because they're great songs, but we also hung on to them because we were able to use them again as book songs in a way that an audience is more accustomed to hearing music and a musical today. Hmm. The other challenge of reviving shows from the 30s and earlier is it's startling how many of them have, let us say, unenlightened racial content. And I'm wondering yeah. how much that had to be dealt with with Anything Goes. Well, when we first looked at this 25 years ago, there's a pompous minister who appears on board with uh, two uh, Chinese converts. In trying to figure out how to address this fact, we were helped by the fact that even in the 34 script, well, I can't, it's been so long since I've looked at it, I can't be sure. But, I mean, the converts are, as we imagined them, not only smarter than the reverend who's converted them, but essentially they're using him as a way to make their way from China to someplace where presumably their lives are going to be are going to be better. And they have characters, let me put it that way, as opposed to simply being caricatures. One's smart, one's timid, one's a scamp, the other one is always afraid of, of getting caught. We did look at much more <laughs> at much more extreme ways of, of dealing with them early on, early on meaning 25 years ago. Uh, Tim and I wrote a just a, a draft of a scene which the show ended with the two Chinese doing a cross, interrupting the reprise which ended the show and explaining that they were on their way to meet with Bertrand Russell and they just had a talk with the crew and everybody on board was going to have to row home. So that the implication was that they were, that in fact they were, they were masquerading as Chinese converts, but in fact they were, uh, they were Chinese communists and they had a political agenda for, uh, Tony Walton looked at us and said, we're not going to end this show that way. <laughs> that was the end, that was the end of that idea. But in this production and in 
productions that are cast well, the actors who play those parts are able to take them and give them a complexity that I hope they're comfortable with and that I'm comfortable with. Hmm. I mentioned in the introduction that you are the son of a book writer for Broadway musicals. In fact, someone who won the Tony and the Pulitzer for his first show, Fiorello. That's correct. Was he already a success on Broadway by the time you were old enough to know what your dad did? Well, no, it's, you know, my dad's career is an interesting one. He was, a, he was uh, an accomplished novelist. That's what he did. And, um, uh, and, and, and short story writer, The New Yorker was the place where all his short stories got published. And in 1959, which is the same year that Fiorello went up, he had a, a novel called The Enemy Camp, which was on the bestseller list, the Times bestseller list for most of the year. He did not initiate the writing of Fiorello. His phone rang, and uh, uh, Hal Prince and Bobby Griffith, who were partners at the time, said that they, well, as far as I know, I, I suppose he had met them, but they were not friends. But they they wanted to write, they wanted to do a musical about LaGuardia. And I think they perceived my dad, I guess I was 12 at the time, um, as sort of the the archetypal New Yorker, and that he'd be a good choice to take a crack at the book. And um, and then, of course, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Hardick were added to the mix, and then George Abbott. And it was, uh, uh, it was an extraordinary experience for everybody, even, you know, the 13-year-old lad, namely me, who was on the sidelines watching this happen. Because my, my father's career, from my point of view, had been um, a, sort of an invisible one, in the sense that he got up in the morning and went into his study and he wrote he would produce books as a result, but at the age of nine, I was not reading his novels. So, uh, who, you know, I know what he did, and I know what a book was, but all of a sudden, uh, you know, here I was, 12, 13 years old, uh, entering adolescence, and here was uh, this extraordinary success, which made him kind of a celebrity in New York. We had lived in Westport prior to that. And he then did a, a series of, I would say, three or four more shows people did shows one after another in those days Fiorello well, <laughs> is 59 Tenderloin 60 I can get it for you wholesale 62 and I may not pronounce this correctly Pousse Cafe Pousse Cafe Pousse Cafe there's no need 66. to pronounce it no need to pronounce it at all actually okay. it was a legendary disaster <laughs> but Following that, he wrote a play that also was unsuccessful, and he kind of sort of with a shrug thought, you know what, enough of this, and went back to writing novels, which is what he did for the balance of his career. Okay, so what's the impact on young John Weidman in this course of basically you're saying 12 or 13 until you're 15 or 16, your dad has three shows on Broadway. Did this inspire you to say, this is what I want to do? Uh, No. I loved the theater, but pretty much from the moment. I mean, I was I was I was brought into town to see the Music Man. I was brought into town to see My Fair Lady. You know, so very little theater until we moved into New York, and then I just started on my own, going all the time. I mean, I remember sitting in the balcony and seeing Morris Evans in Heartbreak House. Uh, you know, I guess when I was thirteen, and thinking, w- "Wow, 
you know, this is thrilling. Well, it sounds and, like your growing up was more a literary experience than a theatrical yes, experience it, it, in it, some it, ways. Because if at thirteen you're drawn to Heartbreak House, that's saying no. Something. No, that's absolutely true. And uh, although I will say that you know my penny drop moment in retrospect for me was when I was taken to see Little Abner. And uh, the uh, house lights, uh, I guess, went to half, and the curtain went out, and the a scrim in non-pastels. Let me put it that way: broad colors reflecting the broad nature of the show. And I, you know, I remember being genuinely thrilled uh, um, by the scrim. Uh, by the scrim, also by the uh, overture. I mean, that's a better show than it's given credit for. It's it's mm-hmm. quite. Well, I think it's quite witty. Um, but if I, you know, if you're Twelve, witty means something different than it does when you're when you're older. Um, but I I started to go to theater all the time, uh, but never with any ambition to uh, have a career in the theater. Certainly not with any ambition to be a to be a writer. And my my dad, um, uh, to the extent that he well to the extent that his ambitions for me were that I would have a much more safe, protected, mainstream American life. Go to law school, become an attorney, conceivably go into politics. And indeed, I did go to law school, uh, um, passed the bar exam. Well, you were very mainstream. You went to Harvard. Yeah. You went to Yale Law School. I did. Passed the bar, but never practiced. That's correct. So you totally bought into the establishment life. We're talking about a period of time which... um, Usually described as the '60s, when yeah. when um, a lot of people sort of put one foot in front of the other one and waited to see what was going to happen next. And um, I mean, I had a, an extraordinary experience at Harvard, which I think in 19 uh, I entered in '64, and I think it must have been more like what Harvard was like in in 1948 when I entered, and when I graduated in '68, it had been transformed. Um, uh, 69 was the year they shut the university down. It was the, Harvard had its Mark Rudd experience. But it was a thrilling time to be in college. There was something new happening all the time, whether it had to do with music or had to do with drugs or had to do with politics. I mean, it was just – it was – in one way or another, everything was organized around sort of rock and roll and uh, the war in Vietnam. Not show tunes. No, not, <laughs> not show tunes. Although Tim Krauss and I, who would uh, use the sports subjunctive, later go on to rewrite Anything Goes, did write a hasty pudding show together at Harvard, uh, which is where we became met and became friends. And so um, I would go in and see shows that were trying out um, um, in Boston on their way to New York. I had an interest in the musical theater, which was shared by a lot of people I knew. Uh, at college, but music uh, to me was the Beatles. Well, by by the time you got out of law school, the Beatles were done too. Yes, so they were done. Yeah, I find it very interesting. And though I stay mostly on theater with these interviews, I have to ask: you were part of the founding of the National Lampoon. Yes, my dear friend Doug Kenny and uh, good friend Henry Beard. And I was on the Harvard Lampoon when I was at Harvard, came to New York uh, to start a national humor magazine. I will not go into the ins and outs of, of how this came there to be. There are multiple books about how it came to yeah. be. You know, I was in New York and I was writing for the magazine from the very first issue. And um, 
it's hard to recapture what the feeling of the magazine was like in those early days. And then I inter- I mean, I guess I was writing with them for a year or two. I went away. That's when I, I then went away to law school, but continued to write regularly for the magazine, and then came back and became an editor at the magazine afterwards. And until the focus of hip humor moved to Saturday Night Live which didn't, didn't exist at the time. The National Lampoon was the hippest place to, to write comedy. I, I, comedy is even the wrong word. I mean, it's, I mean to – well, it doesn't matter. It was well, the well, hippest any, place to write comedy in America. It was, it was a great gig, as they say. Anyone who's a student of the history of comedy in America can trace essentially the performers coming out of Second City, the writers coming out of the National Lampoon – and then how they merged, and it was everything from the National Lampoon stage shows like Lemmings, and then Saturday Night Live just took on that ethos. Yeah. So it's it's an incredible place. So in the midst of this, you've, you go to law school, you're writing for the Lampoon. What possessed you to, as I understand it, take a play that you'd first worked on in college about the opening of Japan to the Western world? It and. It, and try to see what could be done with it. I can answer that relatively succinctly, or at, at least with great clarity. I, I majored, or as we say at Harvard, concentrated in East Asian history when I was an undergraduate, which was a very weird thing to do in the 60s. But uh, I became fascinated by Asian history, which had never even been mentioned when I was in high school. But I had no intention of writing anything about it. I got to law school, and uh, Yale Law School in those years was a thrilling place to be, but it was clear to me after my first contracts class that I probably didn't want to be a lawyer. And I had the obligatory summer job at a law firm, and I thought, I really don't want to be a lawyer. And I thought, well, what can I do sitting in the Yale Law School library? Because I didn't want to drop out. If I dropped out, first of all, it really would have injured my parents, certainly my dad. And uh, it also would have meant I would have had to support myself, which was not an attractive proposition. And I thought, well, I'll, I, I'll write a play. And it's not because I knew how to write a play, even though I'd seen many plays, but, but uh, I knew what a play looked like. You wrote the name of the character who was going to speak in block letters in the middle of the page, and then what he or she said underneath that. And, then you, and so I wrote a play about, a straight play about Commodore Perry's expedition in 1853 to open Japan to the Western world. And I chose the subject matter because it fascinated me, but also because I thought this is something I know about that most people don't know anything about, and there's a really good story here. And I wrote a letter to Hal Prince, a sort of disingenuous letter, who I had met when I was a kid, but there was no reason for him to remember me, although I was going to remember my last name. And I, I asked him if he ever hired law students as interns in his producing office. And... Um, I mean, appended a PS saying, you know, by the way, I've, you know, I've got this play I'm, I'm, I'm working on about the opening of Japan, and if you ever had a minute, I'd love to talk to you about it. And I got a letter back almost right away. Hal is extraordinary about this. He answers every letter, and he answers it uh, thoughtfully, and he answers it quickly. And um, he said, no, I don't hire interns, but if you're ever in New York, I'm intrigued by the play that you described, and so I arranged to be in New York because I was only in New Haven uh, as soon as possible. And he and I talked, spent about 45 minutes talking. Um, I think by the time I left his office, it was clear to me that he was interested in the subject matter, but as much as anything else, he was already thinking as a director about what it would be like to take the conventions of American musical comedy, which are 
big, loud, and larger than life, and combine them in some way with the uh, conventions of kabuki theater, which is also big, loud, colorful, and larger than life. So I went away and I wrote straight play, and uh, you know he then went in a rehearsal with night music or something. And I sort of a year later I heard from him, and he he liked the play. We had had a reading, and he was going to do it on Broadway. I was this was my head is my head is spinning as um, <laughs> they say in cabaret. But at some point along the way, you know, he changed his mind. He said, and he said, Boris Harrison can't figure out how to how to design it. He doesn't see what. And I thought this was Hal telling me. The subtext was, I'm not going to do your play. Goodbye. He really did want to do it as a musical. Uh, uh, Aronson felt it needed music, and he persuaded, would be the uh, polite word to use, uh, Steve Sondheim to uh, eventually write the score. Steve was interested in the material, but he didn't see... He thought, well, maybe it needed underscoring or maybe a song, but he didn't see it as a musical, and Hal really stayed on him until he reached the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point where Steve really dove into it, and now, you know, as you can tell from listening to the score, it's one of his greatest pieces of work. How much does Pacific Overtures resemble the play you first wrote, and indeed, had it been called Pacific Overtures? It was called Pacific Overtures. Okay. Um, which is a phrase from Commodore Perry's uh, diary. Mm-hmm. The play that I wrote covered the same material, but not as much material as the as the musical did. It was built around the relationship between the same two main characters. But beyond that, and and contained many of the same events as the musical ultimately would, but the musical extended the piece, particularly in the second act, uh, forward into the next uh, 20, 30, 40 years of of Japanese history. And, and so the, the canvas that it was painted on was much larger. Hmm. It was... At least now, in retrospect, it's, of course, a critical success. I don't recall the original reviews. Um, it certainly is, you know, a major piece of work. Did you immediately say, okay, this is what I want to do now, is write musicals? No. It was a bumpy ride, I think <laughs> Davis once said. The, uh, once once Hal and Steve had embraced the idea of doing the show, I thought, well, I, I'm, I'm in business. I, you know, I'm a Broadway... Hey, Mr. You're Producer, in. I'm in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we got to Boston, and uh, I still haven't read all of Kevin Kelly's review um, because I reached the point where it didn't seem to me that it would be uh, therapeutically useful to continue to read the review. <laughs> but when the show opened in New York, it was very interesting. It got almost no mixed reviews at all, except in The Times. Clive Barnes wrote a mixed review. The other, the other reviews, in an almost uncanny way, were divided – uh, right down the middle. It's like Newsweek thought it was a, I think it was Newsweek, thought it was, uh, you know, a breakthrough work of art. And Time thought it was a tedious bore. And uh, the New York Post thought it was a, uh, you know, an, an, ex- an, an accomplishment such as, which was going to change the musical theater. And the Daily News thought, stay home and, and watch paint dry rather than coming to see the show. It was sort of confusing. And also, my creative center of gravity was still more connected to my colleagues at the Lampoon, people my own age, people with whom I I was sharing a kind of cultural experience, than it was with the sort of 
cultural world of the musical theater. So, I mean, I continued to work at the Lampoon, and I wrote a bunch of screenplays, especially when Animal House uh, came out. Everybody who was connected with the Lampoon immediately was a much sought-after screenwriter, even though none of us knew what the hell we were doing. But I also I continued working in the musical theater. I wrote a musical with the last musical that Bob Waldman and Alfred Urey wrote as collaborators. Um, America's Sweetheart. America's Sweetheart, originally to, to be entitled Death and Taxes. It was the idea started with me, and it was it was one of those shows that um, feels like a real missed opportunity. Where uh, you know, if I had if I had had more experience and more confidence in myself, in other words, if I were older. Um, uh, we might have been able to hold on to what the initial impulse behind the show was about, and it, but it was a, it was a real learning experience because we weren't none of us were quite on the same page, even though we appeared to be, and we persisted with the show even when I think it had become clear, even though we didn't want to say so because we all liked each other very much, that we weren't writing from the same place, and mm. that's ultimately we did it at the Hartford stage and at the Coconut Grove Playhouse and. I think that's it. was it. about Capone. It was about – the notion was – the original notion was uh, was to do a um, – m- my original notion was to do a, a musical about the, the dry little man at the Treasury Department who nailed Capone for not paying his income taxes. Mm. I mean this was the first time that had ever been done. Uh, you know, the irony, which we now accept at the time, must have seemed breathtaking that Capone was supposed to admit that he that – he, had all this money and paid income taxes on it, even though to pay income taxes on it would appear to be an admission that he had stolen stolen the money. <laughs> and um, um, I, what I saw was a piece that would feel like a kind of black and white Warner Brothers gangster movie, like mm-hmm. Scarface or or um, um, what's the Cagney one, the great one, Public Enemy, um, and. Um, I mean, really, not a cynical piece, but a, one a, based on a, a fundamental uh, a political irony, and um, we it it we we sort of lost control of what we were writing about. The first couple of songs that Bob and Alfred wrote were brilliant, sort of totally on the same page that I thought I was coming from, but. Um, and also, I had a lot to learn about how to write the book for a musical. Um, mm. So it just it, it, it didn't. In the end, it didn't work. So when anything goes came along a couple of years later. In an odd way, you had a place to start from, and you really were focused entirely on making a script work because yeah. the songs, even if you pulled them from elsewhere or from the earlier versions, were written. You had to just focus on that script. Yeah, that's quite right, and that's extremely well put. We had some of the most famous songs ever written for the American Musical Theater. What we had to do was to was being true to the uh, initial story to create a a musical book hmm. that would accommodate these songs and deliver what Cole Porter uh, and his collaborators, Lindsey and Krauss and Bolton Wohaus, were wanted to deliver to the audience in 1934 and did with, you know, the show was not a failure in 34. It was a, it was a success. Sure. But, but it just wasn't something you could do again except at Encores, you know. Pacific Overtures was an unconventional idea for a musical. Yes, it was, Howard. <laughs> you topped yourself with Assassins. What was the impetus for Assassins? I read that there was, in fact, 
an earlier work, Charles Gilbert yes. is credited, but that you and Steve Sondheim really took off from that. We, I went to see Steve uh, when when uh, Pacific Overtures, uh, excuse me, when uh, Anything Goes Open and was a hit. I'd had a very good time working with all the people at Lincoln Center. Jerry Zaks was a pleasure to work with and and, and Tony Walton and, and um, Greg Mosher and Bernie Gersten. It, it, it was, I liked it. And Steve and I had remained good friends uh, since Pacific Overtures. But I had an idea for a, a musical that I've never written. But I, I called him up and I said, I've got an idea. Let me come in and we'll talk about it. And um, so I described it to him. And he said, well, I don't know. It sounds more like a movie. I'm not sure. He said, what do you think about this? Assassins. And uh, I pressed him for more information. <laughs> and, in fact, he had been on the, the jury of a uh, musical theater competition that Stuart Ostro had run a number of years before. And a guy named Charlie Gilbert had submitted a musical, which essentially was about a disgruntled Vietnam vet who became involved in this shadowy conspiracy to kill the president. Steve and the other jurors had found it interesting, but not that interesting. But what Steve remembered about it was that the piece was decorated with occasional appearances by historical assassins. I think probably mostly, uh, if not exclusively, Americans. John Wilkes Booth, Lee Harvey Oswald, like that. And we started to talk about we started to meet once a week and and talk about just the characters, who obviously were are inherently um, dramatic, if only because of the way in which they ended their lives or and the lives of others. But it, it dawned on me after you know we had talked for a couple of months um, that w- what really drew me to the material was the fact that John Kennedy was killed. I guess when I was seventeen, I was a senior, senior maybe junior in high school. And it was the first real experience of loss that I had ever had. Um, my grandparents were alive. I just, uh, I'd been a lucky kid. But I was one of those sort of Camelot kids. And um, I went down to Washington from New York and stood on the sidewalk when the funeral cortege went by. And it, it was, it was a, a, a deeply emotional event in my life. And although I, I didn't think about it in these terms at the time, um, I was a kid, but... Um, the Warren Commission, subsequent conspiracy theories, none of the attempts to explain how this angry little man in, in Dallas could create so much grief and so much pain worldwide, none of the attempts to explain it ever seemed to me to either make sense or to be worth pursuing. And I realized what we were writing about with a, you know, a possible subtitle for the show could have been Who Killed John F. Kennedy? And there was a reluctance at the time also uh, to put these characters together and look at them as a group. They were viewed as freaks like earthquakes or uh, thunderstorms, tornadoes that tear up trailer parks. And I thought if we put them together as a group and look at them, we may discover uh, some commonality, some common grievance, something that would really be worth writing about. And we felt we did. And that's what we wrote about. When the show was first done at Playwrights Horizons, you had an extraordinary cast. You were doing it in a small theater. There was a lot of expectation that it would move. But you ran up against, at least in now what I can only refer to as folklore, the first Gulf War. And suddenly people were saying they didn't want to finance a show about presidential assassins when 
were at war. Is that true? Um, I, the degree to which the the whatever the code name was for the for the war was the degree to which that did the show in, uh, I think is questionable. I don't. It didn't help, and it might have had a significant impact. I think the biggest problem was that we did not write a show about people who had killed the president or tried to. The uh, point of which was that it's bad to kill the president. We simply assumed that everyone would bring that into the theater with them, that uh, murder, and particularly these high-visibility murders of our only real national symbol, and the extraordinary grief which they had uh, produced meant that why waste two hours of someone's time telling them, writing a show that says it's bad to do that? So what we did is to try and look at, as I said, what these people may have had in common, and we felt that in order to sort of knock the audience off balance and take them to a place where they could they'd be required to process material that we were throwing at them in a lot of different ways, we wrote a show which was accused of having no point of view. In fact, it has a, a, a powerful point of view. And a subsequent productions, particularly the one, the brilliant one that Joe Mantello did at the roundabout in 2004, you know, I think made that abundantly clear. But the critics were not prepared, I don't know how to put it, the, the reviews were terrible, mm. and um, they were angry. And I think there was, even though it was, you know, only 25, 20 years ago, there was still a feeling um, that to deal with material of this seriousness in the musical theater was necessarily to trivialize it in some mm. way. Do you think the attitudes had changed by the time the roundabout production yes. came along? I do. And I think a couple of things that are simply a reflection of the fact that time passed. Um, people became familiar with the score. People became familiar with what the content of the show was so that anybody who saw a subsequent production knew what they were getting into, if you know what I mean. And I think that meant that the audience, for the most part, saw the show when the curtain came up in a different way. That hmm. doesn't mean that it didn't still make some people angry, but the people who took the journey we wanted them to take were deeply moved and understood what we were up to. But Frank Rich, bless him, wrote a wonderful column when the Roundabout production opened in which he referred to the show sort of as the, as the first post-9-11 musical, that it was uh, that, the, that the experience particularly of New Yorkers on 9-11, the experience of vulnerability, possibility that something dreadful could happen at any moment, um, that we were not at all on solid ground, was something that's inherent in the way in what we had written, and everyone had now lived through this kind of an experience, and that it made the show work for people in a way that it couldn't work previously. So um, ironically, the first post-9-11 musical was written in 1990, and sadly, events in the world had to catch up with you. Well, that's almost the last line of Frank's column. I think to a certain extent that that's true. Hmm. I'm curious about Big, because Big was a case where you are adapting an existing movie for the stage. Was that a different challenge for you, and was that a rewarding challenge for you to take a story that a lot of the audience was going to know 
coming in and and having expectations of what it should deliver. I don't, uh, as a general principle, and this has nothing to do with good, bad, or right or wrong. It's just a it's a individual predisposition. Adaptations don't interest me much. Now, if it's if it's an adaptation, if the underlying work is sort of obscure and is flawed, and 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 you have a group of authors looking at it in a different way, that maybe that's another matter. But um, a big as a film, I thought was practically a perfect piece of work. It's 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 a, just an extraordinary piece of storytelling and very moving. I think, and I think that. The work done by Maltby and Shire is really good. Uh, the work done by Mike Ockrent and, and Susan Stroman, who staged it, was also really good. I just think it was a musical that didn't need to be written. Hmm. And I think there are a lot of musicals that don't need to be written. And I think a lot of very talented people devote a lot of time and energy, and it's happening more and more now, to taking sort of branded material adding songs and attracting an audience and making money. Make money is good. I'm all for it. You know, that's not the issue. But it's whether or not, you know, it's really true. Movies is really what I'm talking about. Whether or not a a film which is, which is particularly one that, which was that recent and which had a star performance, whether or not there's any point or a real point in spending that much time telling the story again I don't know. There isn't really isn't for me. David Richard wrote one song sort of as a as an experiment which was a brilliant song and still is. And that sort of pushed me over into saying, Well, well let's let's try Which song let's, was it? It's called uh, Stop Time. Stop Time, Barbara Walsh's yeah, number. Exactly. Uh, ultimately in the show. You know, so so let's go on to writing No, it wasn't that song. It was oh. I it was I Wanna Know. Oh, okay. Which the uh, kids sang, uh, but it could have been Stop Time. I mean hmm. uh, you know um, Let's go on to writing a dance musical. What is it to write? And I'm speaking of contact, of course. Yeah. It was early on called a dance musical. Am I right? It's called the first thing it was called. Uh, its first poster was a dance play. A dance play. So, how do you write a dance play? Stro and I were buddies, and she'd gotten this call from uh, Andre Bishop, who I think quite astutely. Um, um, thought if he could pull her into his building, he could sort of push her in the Jerome Robbins direction and away from the Tommy Tune direction, which is – that's not a rap on Tommy Tune. Mm-hmm. It was just – it's at all. It's just he saw in her an ability to to um, produce – well, I mean, she, now she's got ballets all over the place and Scottsboro Boys is in a remarkable piece of work. Uh, in any event, so she called me after Andre called her, and he said, she said, I just got this phone call. They're going to give me the basement. You want to work on something? And I astutely said yes. And she had a, the kernel of an idea already, which was at the, this – she had been to this after-hours after hour dance club. She had seen this woman in a yellow dress who behaved in a very specific way. She was very aloof. Somebody approached her and wanted to dance. She would nod her head, yes, dance one dance, but that was the limit of the contact that she wanted to have. This was not dancing; was not foreplay. It wasn't supposed to lead to, let's go out and have two drinks, and then we'll wind up back at my apartment. And if she didn't want to dance with the guy, she'd shake her head, and that was the end of that. And it seemed like a a startling image of what, at least viewed from one perspective, relationships of all kinds were sort of like in New York in in. The mid '90s. Uh, well, yeah, that's sort of when we started. I guess a little later than that. And Mastro and I would meet on a regular basis, and 
I mean, the script that I wound up with after we had sort of talked our way through the show looks more like a screenplay than it does like the script for musical. It's um, There's much more dialogue and contact than, than people think there is. When people stop talking, instead of bursting into song, records get played. So it sounds like there's less... I mean, there are sunken musicals, I think, that have less dialogue and then them then contact us. But, you know, we did the third piece first, and we, which has a very strong narrative. And the book was a combination of, of, of the dialogue and the choreography, but we worked it all out together so that the scenes in many ways were based on song choices, which were predominantly hers. I mean, I might have an idea, but, you know, she uh, had a sequence of songs that she thought would deliver the story we were trying to tell. And, you know, we would shape the scenes around the shape of the songs because hmm. the songs weren't going to change. They were, we knew we were going to play for a very specific reason that's specific to the content of the piece, not just the rationale. That's That was the – because we had talked about do we want an original score? Should we – we talked to Aaron's and Flaherty, uh, but we wound up with what we wanted. And it was a totally different experience but, but hugely satisfying. Uh, it, you know, all musical theater, you're – you know – if you like your collaborators and you're on the same page, you're going to have a satisfying experience, even if when you get to opening night, the critics disagree with you. Mm. But interestingly, not unlike Anything Goes, there were certain parameters, the parameters being that the songs existed and you were going to use those recordings. It would not be played live. It would not be altered to fit either the story you wish to tell or the moves that Stroh would want the dancers to perform. So a different way of yeah, creation. Yeah, once we completed this sort of first stage and there was a script, uh, I was in the rehearsal room with her virtually all the time while she did, if you will, her writing, which was creating the steps. And um, but there, it was synergistic. I mean, that would resulted in me cutting some stuff and writing a different ending to the piece, a new different last scene. Uh, so the collaboration continued you know, it's, it's reflected in the ultimate credits for the piece in which choreography occupies the space which would ordinarily be occupied by music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim or, you know, um, music by Richard Rodgers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. It was a, um, I mean, I felt like a book writer who was working with a, uh, a composer lyricist who happened to be composing with choreography as opposed to with hmm. piano. Bounce, Roadshow, if I remember correctly, Wise Guys you, at one you, point you, as well. Yeah, you do remember correctly. Um, a long aborning <laughs> collaboration yes. between you and Steve Sondheim, seen at various points along the way, um, soon to be seen again in London at the Chocolate Factory. It's in rehearsal right now. Is the version that we saw at the public, the final version, or are there, is there revision for what's going to happen in uh, London this I summer? think it's the, it's the final version in the same sense that the um, uh, the version of Lincoln, uh, excuse me, anything goes that we did at Lincoln Center was the final version of, of I mean, it was, Steve and I will go over for um, um, previews. Uh, we talked to John Doyle, uh, the director, several times about the timing on this. And it, there may be tweaks and changes that we will want to make, but I am and always will be enormously grateful to Oscar Eustace at the Public Theater and, and then to John Doyle because a show 
in which Steve and I were never really never were quite on the same page. Um, I mean, Oscar, you know, whose who's reputation as a dramaturg is well earned. Oscar really kind of pushed, sort of pushed us together until we were really writing the same show. And Doyle, who's wonderful, uh, John's view of what we were doing was the, the sort of the same as Oscar's. So what we wound up with the show that came in for a landing at the public theater is one with which I was entirely satisfied. Now let me take a step back. You say it took Oscar and John Doyle perhaps to get you on the same page. What page were you on and where do you think Steve Sondheim was over those different incarnations? To over really oversimplify, I would say that I was, um, from the moment Steve called me and said, have you ever heard of Wilson Meisner? And I said, no. He said, well, there's a book. You know, Do you want to read it? And I said, yeah. Um, when I read the book, what interested me most was um, not so much Wilson Meisner, but his relationship, his, his sort of exploitive relationship with his Exploitive, exploitative, what, his exploitive relationship with his brother, um, but in particular the the period of time in American history in which they uh, carried on their adventures or misadventures. I mean, it was sort of the end of the robber baron period, a unregulated um, period when the frontier had finally closed. It's like their family arrived in California. They hit the they hit the wall. And Addison Wilson were the were the first two Meisners to turn back and look at a, a, essentially a completed country. And the question became, well, now what are they going to do with it? How are they going to behave? And um, they didn't behave well. Wilson certainly didn't. I mean, um, he made a mess uh, wherever he went, and he never cleaned it up. Hmm. And um, I, what interested me, I think, mostly was that we had reached a point we certainly have now in, in our history where um, uh, we could no longer afford uh, – there wasn't enough space uh, in the country or on the planet, and I'm speaking metaphorically, to make messes and and not clean them up. And his relationship with his brother Addison reflected a lot of that. And um, I don't mean I wasn't interested in the, in the characters because you can't write about the background <laughs> – but it was that aspect of it, this, this sort of larger, fundamentally political idea that was most interesting to me. And, and Steve's interest, you know, from the beginning had always been in Wilson Meisner, who he saw as a man with so many talents that uh, he he couldn't settle on one. And that was sort of his tragedy. Hmm. Um, I read the book and he said, what do you think? I said, well, I said, well, one thing I think is that Wilson Meisner was – I'll avoid cursing and you – know, but, but Wilson Meisner was a – he, Steve asked George Abbott at one point, who was the only person in who actually knew Wilson Meisner, what was he like? And Abbott used an extremely unkind word to describe him. Hmm. So we were always slightly at odds. And when we had a, you know, we couldn't sort it out at the New York Theater Workshop, wound up working with Hal Prince, who was really, it was very enthusi- really enthusiastic about it, but saw it more as a kind of a musical comedy. Um, we just we were kind of we by the time we finished Bounce, which was the version that Hal did at the at the Kennedy Center, there was really nothing more to be done to that version of the story. 
Mm. You could, there was nothing to tweak or fix, or it was, you know, it, that was as good as it was going to get. And it's it's uh, a very different piece of work from um, the one that we wound up with at the public theater, and staged in a very different way, which reinforced what I felt the strongest elements of the story were. As a final question, one of the great talents of a book writer is that they create a story and then are willing to allow parts of what they've written to be removed and replaced with songs. They may inspire the songs, their words may become part of the lyrics, but you give up a part of the writing process to someone else. Is that rewarding? And do you ever have the desire to just write a play? Yes. Sometimes I have the desire to just write a play, and then I get tired when I think about it. So you like the handoff. (laughs) And the handoff is not terrible in that sense. But I I think the – I would say the – for me, the real answer to your question is that if you are – Working with people of uh, the caliber of Steve Sondheim or Susan Stroman, the handoff produces something which is really thrilling and exciting that includes what you've poured into it, but it comes back with something else. I, I mean, I've, never, I've never felt that somehow my, my impulse or my instinct had been betrayed by the artists I was collaborating with. I think if you work with people um, – um, I mean, I've had hu- enormous luck in, in in terms of my collaborators, and I'm well aware of it. As uh, have they. Well, thank you. But I think that's it's it's a hard question for me to answer. I have had I've I've you know uh, you know David and Richard are also you know obviously high up on that list. But I have sort of started out on projects with other people where I just thought you know what it's I'm not gonna I'm not gonna li- in the end I'm not gonna like this the way. I like it, you know. And the most satisfying writing experience I ever had was Assassins where in a funny way, the although it all feels like it flows from the same pen and we collaborated, Steve and I, in the same way that you would on any musical, me with the ideas about what the songs needed to be about and the ideas flowing back as to what the scenes were, were about. You know, it's like Steve once said, you know, Sam Bick's got two monologues in that show and uh, in any conventional approach to musical theater, the second one would become a song. You just uh, – but that he felt, and and I agreed with him, that uh, the fact that he didn't sing, that they were both monologues, it gave them a, a different weight than they would have otherwise. And, you know, when you're working with somebody with whom you can have those kinds of conversations um, – you know, you'd, you'd be stupid to complain. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, John Weidman, thank you so much for being with us today for thank Downstage you, Center. Thank you, Howard. It was a pleasure. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is John Kilgore. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded at John Kilgore Sound and Recording in Manhattan.
Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.